Well, you know, they, they say that we live in the digital age, right? Um, the information age, and, and you and I both know that's 100% true. You know, I look back, and I still feel young, but I look back and I realize um, time is passing pretty quickly. Just like a little over 25 years ago, well, almost 30 years ago now, time in college, where if I wanted to call my parents, you know, we're separated by a distance of 400 miles. If I wanted to call my parents, I only had two avenues of communication, and um, smoke signals was not one of them. Neither was the homing pigeon. You know, it's either I go down to the payphone with a bunch of change or call collect my parents at expense to them um, and, and pick up the phone call, or I had to do the laborious work of actually pulling out a piece of paper, right? Pulling out a pen and working with my hand to write words and form phrases and clauses and sentences and paragraphs, and then to fold that piece of paper, insert it into the envelope, and take the time to lick the envelope, to lick a stamp because they didn't have self-adhesive stamps back then, and then to walk it to the mailbox. And then hopefully my parents would get it three, four, or five days later. That, that's, uh, that, that was just 25, 30 years ago. Right? Most of you remember that. It's just really only four, two forms of communication, you know, is calling or writing a letter. And how different it is now, right? I can't, I honestly can't keep up with any of it. My kids know far more about the digital age than I do. I'm, I'm, you know, I mean, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have the World Wide Web. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have smartphones. So we didn't have FaceTime or Skype or Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or Snapchat or all these amazing news apps that wake you up at 9.45 on a Friday evening telling you that Fidel Castro has died at the age of 90, right? Everybody's like, yeah, he's died. Uh, he's facing something. Uh, but that's, that's, that, that was before this time, and now it's just like, I don't know how you feel about it, but I, I feel like it's, it, all of these avenues of communication are, are overwhelming. And I don't know that God intended us to have all these avenues of, of information because it seems to me like the more information we have and the more it's available in so many different ways, the, the less wise we are and the less understanding we have. Now, whether or not this digital age and this um, overwhelming um, digital age we live in um, is a good thing, I think remains to be seen. Perhaps it's good. I know some of you are enjoying getting on Amazon and doing your Christmas cut shopping. You don't have to go to a store, although the UPS drivers in this room don't really care for that. Um, but I'll tell you, there's a, there's a cost involved too, and as I've reflected, and this, I'm not the only one, I've, you know, I've read on the topic of what the internet and what the digital age is doing to our brains and, and our relationships. Um, it seems to me that in the way we communicate digitally that, there's, that we lose... Um, the personalization and the meaningfulness, and and at some at some uh, level, uh, the the carefulness of thought um, in terms of communicating. I mean, if again look, I look back. Um, is this twenty five years ago? I was in the Middle East, and um, the only way I could communicate with with my girlfriend, who became my fiance, who's now my wife. Um, was only those two avenues, and, and let me tell you, it costs a whole lot more to call from the Middle East to the United States than it does from Southern California to my parents. So that really wasn't a, a very um, frequent way of communicating. The, the other way was snail mail, right? 
But you know what? I, I, I hung out at the, at the post office place at the school. It was called the Jerusalem College, or it's called International House, uh, House of Pancakes. <laughs> it's not International House of Pancakes. In, Institute of Holy Land Studies, that's what it's called. And uh, I'd stay at the post, post office just waiting for that letter to come. And if it didn't come, I'd just, just hang my head and walk away. Well, she, she doesn't love me. I didn't really think that. But when I got one, you know, it's just you go to a secret place where nobody's going to interrupt me. Just me and the letter, right? I just I don't want my friends around. Just go into my room, corner, and I open it up. And it smells like her, you know. And I open it up. And, and you know what? There is, is, is the closest that I can get to her. And, and, and the font hasn't been sanitized. It's not Times New Roman, not Helvetica, not Courier, not even Wingdings, right? <laughs> Nothing. It's near Deanna font. It's unique to her hand. And just watching, you know, that's what she wrote. She pressed the pen into the paper. She folded the paper, put it in the envelope, lift the stamp and all that stuff and put it in the, like she had to do work for this. And it's just her. It, it, it's her all over it. It communicates something so personal and so meaningful that I still have those letters. There's a lot of emails that I've received, sanitized by general fonts that have been deleted, some inadvertently, some not, because there's just a difference. And, you know, I will say the only thing better than, than, a, than a handwritten letter, and I'll tell you what, handwritten letters mean a lot. Um, is, is hearing her voice on the phone. Every once, she had to actually get a job to call me. Um, and she, she, every once in a while, she'd call me. I'd run down to the end of the hallway, pick it up, and I'd hear her voice. Right? Intonation. It's, it's, it's her voice. It's not a digitized voice. It's, it's a voice, an analog voice. And I just loved it. Unless our conversation ended on a negative note, then it would be horrible. But... Um, I got to hear a voice, and the only downside to talking to somebody on a phone is that you, you can't really replay it or reread it later. You, you, you re- replay it in your mind with your imperfect memory, which isn't all that great. But even better than a handwritten letter and better than a phone call is, you know, walking through customs, and there she is. And uh, the, like the best, most intimate form of communication is when you're face-to-face and you are engaging with one another with all of your senses of listening to the voice and seeing her face and you're able to touch, reach, hug. I mean, that is the most intimate form of communication there is. There's nothing better. You know, it's interesting that when God determined when to send his son, when to communicate with us fully and completely, he chose not to do it in the digital age. He didn't wait for the advent of the internet and didn't wait for the invention of YouTube. Like he chose the most intimate, most complete, most meaningful, and most personal way to communicate possible. And it is he, he came in humanity. Like he just, he became one of us. And that's, that's more significant than we really think about. Like we were able to, when he came the first time, and we look forward to the hope for the second time, the second advent, Able, people were able to experience God with all of their senses, to hear him speak and to see him work and to see him love and to see him touch, to see him um, raise the dead. I just, there's nothing more intimate than God communicating himself by becoming human. 
And that's, that's, that's what we call, right, the incarnation, which is like a big fancy church word for in the flesh. But it's an important word, and I want to use it this morning. It's, it's incarnation, in the flesh. When he chose to communicate and reveal his heart to us, he impressed it upon humanity so that he could know us and we could know him in a way that is complete. And, um, and that is, a, that is a, a beautiful gift to us and, a, and, a, and, a, and a, um, something that we celebrate at Advent is God didn't just come. He came in the form of humanity so, so that we could know him fully and completely in a way that all engages all of our senses. That's, that's how God communicated himself. And, and it speaks volumes to how much like he, he loves us that he would do such a thing. Almighty God, creator of the heavens and the earth, of all things invisible and visible, becoming human to show us who he is. There's... There's just nothing better. But there's another side to it that I want to explore with you today in the next three weeks, and that is how that relates to the church. Because um, if the incarnation is God becoming man, and John chapter 1 verse 14 says that the word, that is God's communication, like God was no longer calling long distance through his prophets. Now he comes firsthand, face to face, that the word, that is the the communication of God, became flesh. It became human, a living, breathing being that you could touch and listen to, and he dwelt among us. That's that's the incarnation. That's that's God becoming man. But but there's another dimension to it that, that, that has to do with us and the world. I think it's appropriate to say that as Christ was the incarnation of God, God in the flesh, that in a sense, and it's only a sense, not every sense, that in a sense, the church is the incarnation of Christ. Now, that point or idea has been pressed far too much and in too far of a direction by some aspects of the church, but in a sense, it is true that we as Christians, we who have the presence of Christ in us by way of his spirit, we who are his disciples, we are the physical presence of Christ here in the world. We are, in a sense, the incarnation of Christ. Think about some of these texts. Paul says, now you are the body of Christ. There's body and individual members of it. So the Corinthian believers were a physical manifestation or presence of Christ in the world. John chapter 13, verse 20, Jesus says, Truly, truly, in other words, pay attention. He says, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. So whoever receives my disciple is actually receiving me. I'm present in the disciple. So the disciple is actually a physical representation of Christ. Something similar said in Matthew chapter 25. Where Jesus says, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, talking about his disciples, the people who believe in him, you do it to me. So if people in the world are act in benevolent ways or kind ways towards disciples of Christ, well then they're acting that way to Christ. All of this leads to the, the conclusion that in some sense we are like the physical presence of Christ in this world. And you're like, big deal. But it, that perspective can change the way that you see your life and the way in which you react or act in this world. There was this teacher back in the 80s who was, who was voted um, Teacher of the Year. That is National Teacher of the Year. His name was Guy Dowd. And I got to hear him, a number of us got to hear him speak on a college campus. 
a Christian guy. And one of the things he said, and it's stuck in my head ever since, is he said, you know, when I walked into the classroom as a teacher, I don't remember what grade he taught, he was a public school teacher, he said, I just was mindful that I am Jesus with skin on it to my students. And then he was, he was encouraging us as a, as a bunch of young students, you go out into the world in whatever profession you have or are called to, and you are supposed to be, as a disciple of Jesus, Jesus with skin on it. You are a physical manifestation of Christ to those around you. That made a huge difference in how he saw his work, and it should make a difference in how you see your work. You are, wherever God places you through your work week or at home, you are the presence of Christ here in this world, intended to carry out the work of Christ. And maybe that helps us make sense of some of the final words of Jesus to his disciples, John 20, verse 21. It says, As the Father has sent me, that is the word made flesh, he sent me into the world as a man to to show the world who God is. Even so, now I'm sending you in the flesh out to the world. And and this Christmas season, this Advent season, provides us an opportunity, a unique opportunity to be just that. To be Jesus with skin on it to our neighbors. In, in line with that, I wanted to just ask and answer two questions this morning before we come to the Lord's table. In terms of this, what we might call an incarnational approach, that is, being Jesus with skin on it, being the physical presence of Christ in this world. Two questions. One, um, what makes it possible? And two, practically speaking, what does it look like? What makes it possible? And secondly, what does it look like? First question, what makes the incarnational approach to the world possible? And this, has a two, this is a two-part answer. The first part of the answer is, you first must be recreated. Or there's different language that the New Testament uses. In the Old Testament, too. You must be given a new heart. Or you must be made a new creature in Christ. Or you must be born Again, born afresh, born from above, born from heaven rather than from earth. And without that, it's impossible. It's impossible for a person to be the presence of Christ in the world. Back to the Gospel of John. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but in the heat, like when John decides to write and introduce Jesus, he does so with the language of Genesis 1 1, right? Genesis 1 1, the first verse of the Bible, in the beginning. John decides, I'm going to introduce Jesus the same way in the beginning. Before there was time, he's introducing Jesus with the language of creation. And it continues. He talks about light, shines. He talks about darkness, both of which are present in Genesis 1. He talks about all things were made through him, that is through the word. And that, of course, is another reflection on Genesis 1, where God creates all things by the simple word of his mouth. And, and then the question is, why? why? Why would somebody introduce Jesus this way? The coming, the arrival, the incarnation this way. Except, is the, 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 the picture that it paints is that God in Christ coming into the world is doing a work of new creation. He's doing a work of recreation. He has come to recreate humanity from the inside out. Not from the outside in. And that's one of the, if not the, distinctive features of Christianity is uh, a lot of uh, 
religious thought uh, has to do with reforming what's on the outside, making people's behavior better, reforming a culture. And the problem is, is that the problem with humanity is it's internal and it gets to the very core of who we are. Our heart, the heart of hearts, the soul, the spirit is fundamentally ugly. Despite how much you listen to Christina Aguilera, no offense to her, but we are not beautiful on the inside. And the thing is, is that he came to renew us from the inside out. He didn't come to put lipstick on a pig, right? To dress up the barn, the old falling down barn. No, he came to recreate you from the inside out, from the very core of who you are. A work of creation. And he specifies that in a few verses down from this creation language. Where he says, to all who did receive, that is receive Christ in the context, it says him, who believed in his name. This is what makes the difference between those who have had their heart renewed or recreated and those who haven't. Who believed in his name, who gave, he gave the right to become the children of God. And then this is a critical verse, verse 13. Again, this is, has, this is associated with creation. Who were born, right? Birth, new beginning, that's the idea of creation. Born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, that is by human will, um, nor of the will of man, but of God. He's talking about, on the one hand, what marks those who are disciples, those who are physical representations of Christ, are those who believe, those who have accepted him as the Messiah. But that can't happen unless a person, according to the text, is firstborn. Not firstborn, but firstborn. In order for a person to believe, in order for a person to embrace Christ, one must first, first be alive. And, and, and that's, that's, that's the logic. You have to be born. You have to be alive before you can believe. And that being born, and he's not talking about physical birth, he's talking about spiritual rebirth. He's talking about being born again. He's talking about becoming a new creature. It's not by the will of flesh, but it's by the will of God. In other words, what he's saying here is that for a person to become a genuine believer, for a person to become a disciple, for a person to become the living presence of Christ in the world, God must first do a work of recreation in your heart, which only he can do. It's not by your will that it's done. The act of creation is the single act of a creator. A creature, like you and me, or an animal, deer, antelope, aardvark, whatever, it cannot participate in its own creation. It's physically impossible. Any more than a baby can decide to be born or decide to be conceived. It just doesn't happen. A baby is conceived by the will of its parents. A creature cannot participate in the creation of itself. And what he's saying is, in order for us to be changed, God does a work of creation that only he can do. That only he can do. And only out of that, then, can one receive and embrace. Now, that, that's controversial to some because it seems to suggest that God is exclusive, or it seems to suggest, or should I say diminish, 
personal responsibility or the ability of a human to make choices. Which, if it's understood correctly, I think works in the reverse. And also, to misunderstand the, like, the point of why this is written and why it works this way. That is, what it does when you say, or when we hear, listen, for you to believe God must first do an act, a singular act of creation. He must call your soul to life. What that does to us is it strips us of all sense of human pride. What it means is that we do not have the capacity within ourselves to generate saving faith. We must first be acted upon before we can have faith. That just puts us at a place where like, so you have to act first. Yes, I'm your creator. It also just destroys any sense of, of personal entitlement. Like somehow God owes me. Like I'm, I'm good enough that, that God should reach out to me. He should come for me. He should die for me. And by the way, and it's not by the way, at the center of this new creation is the death and resurrection of Jesus. For there to be a new creation, the old things have to be judged, and then in the resurrection, newness of life has to be offered. That's why Jesus came, why he died, why he rose again, to bring about a new creation beginning with the soul of a human being. But as I said, this, this whole idea that you must first be created or recreated or born anew, it strips us of all of that sense of self-entitlement, which is another way of talking about self-righteousness. And there was a lot of it in Jesus' day, and there's a lot of it in our day. You know, the Jewish people had a mindset, if I'm reading the Gospels correctly, where they felt like in, in some way, shape, or form, they had an edge on everybody else. And they had an edge because they were Jewish, because their great-great-great-great-grandfather was Abraham, and because they had the laws of Moses, and they had the oracles of the prophets. They're, we are a special people, darn it, God chose us. And in a sense, that's true. But not because of anything good in the people of Israel, and that's something they forgot. And so Jesus comes along and says, listen, it doesn't make a difference if your great-great-great-great-grandfather is Abraham or that you have the laws of Moses. That doesn't entitle you to anything. You must first be recreated. You have to drop all of your pride and come empty. That's, that's, that's what it was meant to do, and it's, it's meant to do the same in our day because the same kind of sense of self-entitlement happens in, 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 in it, both religiously and just culturally. You know, there, there are people who believe that because they grew up Irish Catholic or because they grew up uh, Italian Catholic that, well, I'm Catholic, so uh, that, that means I'm, I'm, I'm Christian. Um, same thing with the German Lutherans. It's because I'm German and I'm Lutheran, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm associated with the Lutheran church. Or because you come from the crazy Baptist church like I did, well, you're part of the, part of the group. So it's just like, you must be born again, Jesus insists. You have to be recreated from the inside out, and that's something only God can do. You can't. You're like, well, that puts me in a difficult place. So how, how, how do I be born again? And I think the simple answer is believe. Jesus has come. And if we are in a humble place where we have dropped all pride and every sense that I can do this, and we find ourselves coming, then you know what? God has already worked in your heart. Like the proof that you are a genuine believer that God has recreated you, is you believe. So you're here, if you believe today and you're a, you're a disciple of Christ, it's because God is, regardless of what your theology is, um, God has already said, awaken. 
as an act of grace alone. So one cannot be the presence of Christ unless one first is recreated. That's, that's, that's per, one part one of the answer. You must be recreated. As a side note, you know, in the 18th century, uh, one of the great awakenings in our, our country, um, the great preachers of um, George Whitfield and um, Jonathan Edwards, one of their primary points of preaching to a church that had gone dead still said they believed, was they preached the necessity of regeneration. That is, just being, just associating yourself with the church does not make one a true Christian. You must have a work of spirit. You must be renewed. And the church came to life as a result of them preaching this truth, that you must have um, God's creative power. And you know what, by the way, just... When a person comes to Christ, it's always a miracle of infinite power. You can have a, a kid who's born in a Christian house with parents that don't divorce, who's trained up in the way of the Lord, and you can have uh, another person, a hardened criminal, who's in solitary confinement. Two completely different environments. And it's no harder for God to recreate the heart of a hardened criminal in solitary confinement that a kid is raised in a Christian home. Because it's a creative act. It is an act of miraculous grace for God to say, come alive. The second part of the answer, what makes the incarnational approach to the world possible? First, you must be recreated. And if maybe someone in this room will come to the realization, I haven't, I haven't experienced that yet. And if you come to that realization, that's probably a moment in which God is recreating it. It's pretty kind of cool. But the second part is how we continue in the Christian life. And that is, now I flip to John 15, where Jesus says, I am the vine. This is a metaphor, right, of, of dependence. I am the vine. You are the branches. One is the source. The other is um, that which bears fruit. Uh, Whoever abides in me and I in him, that's this connection, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It's, it's, it's interesting that we can't create, recreate ourselves. It's impossible for the creature to cre recreate himself. But not only that, but we can't even bear fruit in and of ourselves. The emphasis and the mandate and the priority for the Christian is to be so continuously connected to Christ to have a vital relation, ongoing relationship with him, like abiding, right? Which means we are completely and utterly dependent upon him. Um, which I think means, well, well, I know it means. It means that we don't get life from Christ independent from him. It's, it's a constant dependent life. Like it's, it's not like Jesus gives you a little, um, when you come to him, a little, a, a little magic life pill or a little Jesus Red Bull can, and you drink it, and you're like, man, I got life. It's, it's more like breathing. It's like every moment we live, it's because we're breathing in and out, in and out. We are constantly, perpetually dependent upon air. At any moment, if the air goes away, we begin to die, and we do die very quickly after. 
The idea being we are supposed to breathe in and breathe out Christ. We are to breathe in and breathe out his word. We are to breathe in and breathe out his death. We are to breathe in and breathe out his resurrection. We are to breathe in and breathe out his work. We are to breathe in and breathe out his community. That is the people, the church that he's given to us. That is the means, that is what it looks like to to abide and stay connected, closely connected. And as you do, the power flows and the fruit grows. That's the greatest priority. You just stay close to Christ, you know? There's no power otherwise. There's probably Christians in this room who, who, who have genuinely been born again. You have, you have had the Spirit of God move in your life. But you have not been consistent in abiding in Christ. And you're kind of like Pluto, right? Orbiting the sun out in the frozen zone. Rather than in close, or, or maybe you're somewhere between Saturn and Pluto. I don't know. Church, are, are, are you intimately, intimately connected to Christ? I mean, one of the reasons to go into church isn't to make the church bigger. One of the reasons to go to church is because you want to stay connected to people who are connected to Christ. One of the reasons to hear, take in, meditate upon the word is because you want to stay close to Christ. One of the reasons you want to stay praying to the Lord and talking to him and conversing with him is you want to stay close to the Christ. One of the reasons we're supposed to take communion is to be reminded over and over again about the death and resurrection of Jesus so we can stay close to Christ, to abide in him. So the answer, how, how can we be the living presence of Christ in this world in a way that makes a difference? Second part is you have to have a vital relationship with Jesus. First, you have to be recreated. And the second one is you have to live in this vital, intimate relationship with Christ. And if this doesn't happen, then the practical part is pointless. So here, here, here's the thing. If, if you've been recreated, and you know it, and it, you see it more by evidence of a life change, of the fact that you believe you're, you're attracted to Christ, you're attracted to the people of Christ, the word of Christ, If you have been brought to life, and if you're in a vital relationship with Christ, then you're going to see your life make a difference. That is, you are going to be the living, physical, in-flesh presence of Jesus in this world. And God is going to work through you to bring life to other people. But it requires these first two. And when that's going, when that's there, then... It affects um, through your surroundings. Those are the, that's the first and really the most important question. What makes it possible is God has worked a work, a miracle in your life, to bring you to life, bringing you to faith, and then to stay connected to Christ. But the second question, and this is the last question, and with this I, I really close. It's like, well, then what does an incarnational, like Jesus with skin on it, approach to the world look like? Here I'm just going to offer one of a number of answers, which we'll cover in the weeks ahead. I think what it looks like is this. It means you show up in the flesh. If those first two questions are answered properly, first one question, two parts, then it means that as Christians, as disciples, as people in whom the Spirit of Christ dwells, is that you show up in the flesh. That is, you go to where other people are. God didn't wait for us to come to him because we never would have. We're told that no one seeks after God, no, not one. 
He would have forever waited an eternity for us to come, and we never would have came. And so instead of us coming to him or him waiting for us to come to him, he came after us. He went to where we are. He invaded our space, our time. He came to us in the most intimate way possible. He became a man. And I believe that that's how, how the Lord reaches people. That Now, I don't know if too many people who have been won by a tweet or a Facebook entry or even a phone call. Now, I know God can use those things to bring a person to life. God spoke through a donkey in the Old Testament. God can do a lot of things, but it seems to me that the way that he designed for his church to grow and for people's lives to be changed is for people to see each other face to face, for us to go to people and minister to them life on life, to minister to them flesh to flesh. And I'd be willing to bet, just based upon the testimonies that I've heard in my life and some of yours, that if you look back on who God used to bring you to faith in Christ, my guess is it wasn't YouTube. My guess is that you met a real person. My guess is, is they got involved in your life and showed you something different. My guess is that they spoke to you about Christ and something happened to you. That's the incarnational approach. It's showing up and being Jesus with skin on it. And, 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 and that, that's, I believe, how God has called us to be. And this Advent season, you know, it, it, like I said, it provides an avenue, an opening, an opportunity so that people won't think you're strange. Like if you bring them a Christmas gift in July, well, they're going to think you're a weirdo. Or if you have an open house in the spring and say, hey, everybody, come on over, they're probably going to suspect you're going to do an Amway presentation. But Christmas time, you knock on a door as a neighbor, you bring someone a pot of soup saying, hey, we just want to say Merry Christmas. My guess is they'd be receptive to it. Just making that connection. That's, this is an opportunity we have in these four weeks as a church, as disciples of Christ, as people in whom the Spirit of Christ dwells, to make flesh-to-flesh, life-to-life connections with our neighbors. And if you're wondering, I, I don't really know how to make that work. I can always pray, and that's, that's assumed. But most of us just have to open our eyes. And just a couple weeks ago, maybe it was a month ago now, you know, came to the realization because I saw police cars parked out front of a house of my neighbor that a a widow lady um, had lost both of her daughters within six days of each other. And at another point, I looked and happened to be raining that day, and out of her gutters flowed water, but not through the downspout. Opportunity. Dan Deckard needs to go to my neighbor because I'm supposed to be Jesus with skin on it and just say, can I clean out your gutters? You look around in your own neighborhood and you're going to see, see stuff. And my encouragement to you this season is, is when you see it, show up. Show up. Make that contact face-to-face like Christ did with us. Go to them and do something. In fact, I want to issue a challenge. I realize some of you cynical Christians out there are going to react and say, well, don't tell me what to do. I'm not a legalist. <laughs> well, just just go with this. Just if, if we could, those of you who know Christ in this room, just talk to your wife or husband or to your family. Just say, hey, we, we were going to try and reach out 
and, and, and make contact with just one family in our neighborhood this week. One each week. Can we have one each week? And if you're an overachiever, do two or three. But just one, just looking around, go, okay, this, we're going to do this. We're going to be the presence of Christ, Jesus with skin on it in our neighborhood. That's the challenge to me, to my family, to you, to us. And just, just watch what happens. The, the Lord is, 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 is going to work through this. I know he will if, if this is our heart, is to be Jesus with skin on it because he's brought us to life and he is living in us and he, is, um, he loves us. That's why I issued the challenge, right? I mean, why not? Because we have the best thing possible. Like, to me, the message of Christianity is so winsome and so full of love and life that God himself would become flesh and die for us. It's amazing. So as you come to the table this morning, which is just that, it's a representation of God coming in the flesh and dying for us so that we could have new life and be new creatures. One, just give thanks that God was so good. And two, think about and pray about whether or not you'll accept the challenge of just endeavoring this season to be Christ, to be Jesus with skin on it, to the neighbors around you. Amen? Most of you have taken communion with us before. If not, and you are, if you are a follower of Christ, this is about communion, which means communing around Christ as a community, um, which means it's for believers. If you're a, a follower of Christ, even if you're visiting, visiting from out of town, feel free to come and partake. We have both um, regular and gluten-free. And um, after I pray, feel free to come up. And as I pray, if I could have those serving communion, come up and, um, and just worship. And let's uh, allow the Lord to minister to us in this time. Lord, thank you for this bread. Thank you for this cup. Symbols of the death of Jesus uh, poured out for us so that judgment upon us would be passed on to him and his life would be passed on to us. Lord, in a way that only you can do, I pray for just your power to be at work, nurturing and um, feeding and edifying the lives of those here gathered um, by what you have done and who you are for us in Christ Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.